0: Great. Cool. Awesome. Well, whether you are doing great tonight or not, either way, I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad that we are here together as we continue on in our series called Revive Us. Now, um, throughout this series, we have, um, we have talked about this concept of uh, the journey with Jesus is not meant to simply uh, give us the mindset of a tourist, like we know tourism, right? Where you, you go into a place when it's convenient for you and for your schedule, and you do the things that you want. And so easily that can be our mindset towards spirituality and towards our journey with Jesus. But in fact, the, our journey with Jesus is meant to be more attuned to a pilgrimage, one where you have a fixed destination where you're going to, and you do whatever it takes to get there. Uh, we've been using this phrase, it is meant to be a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, we, don't coin, we didn't coin that. Eugene Peterson uh, ripped that one off from someone else, and he's really smart, um, so, so that's why I rip him off in this. And, um, and, and I love that idea, though, that following Jesus is meant to be a long obedience in the same direction. Three concepts that are difficult for us in our cultural context, right? Long, we like instant gratification. Obedience, we like doing what we want, not submitting to somebody else's rule and authority. Uh, same direction, well, we're pretty fickle in our hearts and in our lives, and we're like, what's that thing over there? Let's go after that. And then we kind of like just kind of pinball around, right? So this idea that falling after Jesus is supposed to be like this spiritual pilgrimage is something that uh, is, is at the heart of the scriptures, in fact, we've been, we talked before about how in the book of Psalms, there is a sequence of about 14 different songs known as the Songs of Ascent. And these Songs of Ascent were meant to be this ancient playlist that the people of Israel would sing from all across the nation of Israel as they descended upon Jerusalem three times a year for three of their sacred holy feasts. And they would sing these songs and they would be this tangible metaphor that as they were on this journey, their journey, their physical journey was like a metaphor for the fact that each of their lives are a journey with Jesus, or specifically back then with Yahweh, their God. Each of their lives collectively make up a journey that they, as a family, as a nation were making together so they would be reminded of who God was and who they were, even though they came from a diversity of geographic locations around the nation of Israel, even though they had different life experiences, they all came together. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if all of the United States gathered up in Kansas City three times a year or something like that. Like, we all made our way. Everyone. I mean, that would Be pretty chaotic right Um, much smaller nation states back then but it would still be like wouldn't that just be beautiful that image of everyone coming together wherever you come from and all coming together to worship God together it's a pretty cool image so they would join up together and what it was meant to demonstrate is that they were one unified collective family now That's beautiful, right? We can agree with that. Like that sounds really epic. Here's the problem. Read just about any place in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and you will discover that their family was not epitomized by beauty and relationship. They had a lot of family dysfunction within the ways that they interacted within that family, within that nation. They had betrayal. They consistently turned against one another. Jealousy, arrogance, pettiness over and over and over again, this is the story that we see unfold in in the Old Testament scriptures. Of course, this isn't just the experience of one ancient nation, but this is the realities of kind of just doing life within family units, right? Like we have imperfect moms and dads, right? Uh, Brothers and sisters, imperfect. Aunts, uncles, imperfect. I mean, everyone has that aunt or uncle, right? Like at Thanksgiving, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Grandparents, like we all have family stuff that goes on, right? I mean, I imagine some of you probably have phenomenal families and I'm so excited for you that you have such a phenomenal family. But I imagine that if you look back over the last three generations of your family tree, you don't go, yeah, they all have it figured out, right? Like you look at your family tree and it's like, yeah, there's some dysfunction in there. Like, yeah, there's some, there's some interesting dynamics at play in different parts of my family. So if that's the case, if that's the case, and families are kind of difficult sometimes, then why does God continually use the language of family to describe our relationship with him and our relationship with one another? Doesn't that seem like b- a bad PR move, right? Like, like maybe pick a different kind of metaphor to talk about because that one seems like a pretty busted up one. He uses a bunch of imagery that has the potential to trigger us in all the wrong ways, right? Like this idea that he is our father. Now, for some of us, I imagine there are some pretty difficult family dynamics with our fathers. Maybe non-existent or an emotionally unavailable relationship, uncaring or overbearing. So then like the idea that like the Lord's prayer, our father who is in heaven, you're like, can I pick a different metaphor for God? And then within the church, where the scriptures talk about that we are to view one another as brothers and sisters. But I mean, I've ima- I imagine that some of you might have some sibling dynamics at play in your family that haven't really evolved since you were like eight. You know, like there is still some sibling rivalries and jealousies and in um, a little bit of screaming matches that might happen around the holidays. Who knows, right? So, so should God perhaps choose a different option than the language of family. Well, what we discover over and over and over again is that within the scriptures, God doesn't go, ooh, the family dynamics are rough. I'm gonna back away from that one, right? No, he doubles down on the language of family. So the question is why? And then it's what hope does that language actually offer? Why does, G, or why does God offer us hope that we are to view life within terms of familiar relationships? And how, in the midst of that, can we experience a reviving touch of God in our lives and within community? So that's where we're going tonight. So I thought we'd start with a few examples within the scriptures of some really Dysfunctional family dynamics, okay? So let's start in Genesis. The first human family stumbles out of the gate, right? So you get Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. The man pulls a jerk move, blames his wife for it. And then the next thing you know, they have two kids, Cain and Abel. Now, Cain experiences fierce sibling rivalry, so much so that he ends up taking the life of his brother Abel. Not off to a great start within the family of humanity, right? Centuries later, a man named Isaac is on the scene and he has two sons, Esau, the oldest, the strongest, the hairiest of the sons, and then you have Jacob, who is the younger one. Um, he is he is simply put the deceiver. Uh, in fact, uh, I think that they base the character of Loki actually on Jacob. Uh, in fact, when I'm when when I'm reading the story of Jacob anywhere in um, in Genesis, I get this imagery in my mind of Loki of Tom Hiddleston in my mind. Okay, so Jacob manipulates his way into stealing his brother's inheritance. Jacob is not a great dude. Dysfunction in the family, right? He later gets renamed with the name of Israel, and he has 12 sons, the youngest of whom becomes his favorite, and he doesn't in any way try to not show favoritism. Instead, Joseph grows up and starts acting a little bit like the entitled younger brother, kind of like a twerp, and he ends up deeply offending his other 11 brothers, and their response is they don't go passive-aggressive, they passed up that exit, and they go straight to aggressive, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Like, again, not a great family move, right? Centuries go by. A shepherd boy named David is dismissed as irrelevant by his brothers, few decades go by, he becomes the king of Israel. And he has two sets of sons who fight against one another with such ferocity, such bitterness that ends up ripping apart the entire nation. So the Bible doesn't exactly paint the rosiest vision of family functionality, right? But it is a real one. It's a relatable one, right? Right? It's one where because of human sinfulness and brokenness, relationships are hard work. But yet God doesn't give us a plan B where we go, oh, okay, people are rough. Um, I'm imperfect, you're imperfect. So therefore let's all retreat into our little hole and then I'll just wait until, I don't know what's gonna happen, but until something happens, it's better because you're imperfect and I'm imperfect and in that imperfection, we're probably gonna end up hurting one another. Instead, like the people of Israel Coming together with this family pilgrimage, we are called to continually come back together into the presence of our God. So that's why I love the Songs of Ascent, because it's like three times a year the people of God, the family of Israel, had a family reunion. They came together to unite at the feet of their God in his presence. So we're going to be in Psalm 133 tonight. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles. Now, Psalm 133, 133 is one of the songs of ascent and it was written by King, by King David. Now, here is how he starts this song. And what I want you to do is as I'm reading this, this psalm, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye an entire nation, a family coming from the various places, the various geographies of Israel, descending upon Jerusalem together to worship God for these holy festivals, singing this song. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore okay isn't that exactly how you describe something when it's awesome and wonderful right I mean I don't know no spoilers but um the first episode of She-Hulk the exact way I would describe it to you is oh man the first episode of She-Hulk is so good it's like a a guy's beard covered in oil right like maybe you wouldn't say it that way I don't know um all right, or if I ask you, hey, how's your day? And you go, oh, my day's as good as a dewy mountain, right? Like that's a little odd, right? We, okay, this isn't the language you would ever use, right? It's not how we describe when something is good. So let's unpack these metaphors really quick before we get into understanding what he's talking about as being this good. So the, the um, oily beard reference, let's talk about that first. So this is a reference to a moment in the Old Testament when Aaron, becomes the high priest of Israel. See, he was anointed and it was this powerful moment in the nation of the history of Israel. And what he was anointed with is this expensive and exclusive blend of oil. It was expensive and it was precious, but it wasn't like the way that maybe you use like your really good essential oils at home where it's like like a drop, drop. Or if somebody asks you for a little bit, you're like, like one drop, that's all you're getting. No, like this was, this was Oil being poured on the head of Aaron by Moses, and it started on his head, and as this expensive, precious oil is just dripping down, it goes into his beard, and it even ends up onto his clothes. Now, what's this for? Why? That's kind of an odd thing we don't typically see that happening in our world, right? What it's meant to symbolize is Aaron being covered in the goodness and abundance of the presence of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Dewy Mountains. So this dewy Mountain that he's referring to is called Mount Hermon. It's still, it's still in existence today. It's uh, this beautifully majestic mountain in Northern Israel. It's the tallest mountain in Israel. Um, and today they turned it into a ski resort so you could go skiing at this dewy Mountain. Uh, and it's known for a heavy, de- uh, heavy degree of precipitation and dew so that each morning the entire mountain is just covered in dew, which is kind of strange right because when you think of Israel maybe you think of something a little uh, a little more deserted uh, and not quite so wet but that was this idea that it was to be covered again in abundance and goodness so the image is that king David is writing about here is he is describing whatever he is talking about is not like just a 5 out of 10 experience, but like a 12 out of 10 territory. Not like a drop drop, but like a dousing, an overflow, an abundance of something that is good and rich. So what is he describing that's this good, this abundant, this pleasant? Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. See, King David knew what it was like to experience family dysfunction. So we can hear his longing as he writes this song. This desire, he is watching his nation being torn apart. Desiring to see them be a unified family. As a dad, I have discovered this by, uh, this, it's like, this rich abundance and goodness is I have um, watched the way that Asher and Abby interact with one another. And I've heard this um, from other friends as well, and watching the way that their kids interact as well. Now, Asher and Abby, Asher's four, Abby's two, you hear them running around here every Sunday. And uh, they have both, they, in their relationship, they will have many beautiful and many um, frustrating moments ahead, that I am sure. But here, are, but, but there are few things that I have ever experienced that are as sweet is when I hear laughter in the backseat because Asher is intentionally trying to make his sister laugh, or when I give Abby a snack and she wants to make sure her brother has a snack, and I hand it to her and she goes and runs it over to her brother. Doesn't that sound like an abundance of goodness? Or when they do do something against one another and they have broken relationship in one way or another, they can go to, they go to one another and they're learning to go and say sorry, to ask for forgiveness and to give one another a hug. When they do that unprompted, typically it's prompted, but when they do it unprompted, it's like, it's beautiful guys. And my daddy heart, come on. See, when my kids treat one another with love and care and affection, it's like being covered in goodness and abundance as their dad. How sweet do you think it is for the fatherly heart of God when his children, when in this, the nation of Israel would sing across fields and mountains and valleys as they journeyed together on their long journey, singing and being reminded of their unity as a family together. See, it It's only with this imagery of family and the fatherly heart of God that we can begin to grasp why God would care so deeply about how we treat one another within the family of God. It's why Jesus would proclaim in his final message to his disciples before the cross, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, the word friend here could be a little deceiving because maybe in your imagination, friend is like vague acquaintance or somebody you don't mind putting up with a little bit or just somebody that you're willing to hang out with from time to time. But the word friend that Jesus is using here is rooted in the Greek word phileo, which is brotherly love and affection the best translation you could have for this word would be something like this. Probably best that they didn't write it out this way, but like beloved or uniquely loved brother, sister, friend. Like that would be the fullness of this phrase. Like you are uniquely loved and that you would see one another is uniquely loved brother, sister, friends. See, when Jesus' disciples love one another, they are willing to sacrifice their wants, their needs, and even their own lives and when they do that to the fatherly heart of God, it's an abundant covering of goodness. Now, notice though, that Jesus doesn't talk about this like it's an optional reality. He says, this is a commandment. commandment. And he says at the end, if you're my friend, You listen to my commands, you shema, you listen and obey. You do what I have asked you to do. It's not so that you can prove that you are my friend. It's because you are my friend that this is the way that you will live. See, this is God's voice on how we are called to live and love one another. In fact, according to Jesus, this is the natural outflow of the fact that we are uniquely loved. That because we discover that we are loved by the Father, we love one another. Now, here's the deal. Do we do this perfectly or even well? I don't. I don't. Do you? Maybe. Maybe you do. You're awesome. Not me. Not often, right? We are imperfect tr- humans who trust our way over God's often. We prioritize me over we. We misunderstand, we miscommunicate, and we do a host of other, live in a host of other dark spaces against one another, right? See, this is why the gospel is such good news. It's not the news that you better work harder and then God will love you. It's the news that God created humans to rule with him. But instead of ruling with him, we decided to usurp him and try to rule on our own terms. So we rebelled against him and we continue to rebel against him. Yet in the midst of our rebellion, the father sent his own son to restore us back into his forever family on this epic rescue mission on the cross so that we could now be a part once again of reigning with him, to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all of this isn't based on how good you are. You're not good. You're not good enough. Neither am I. It's not because you're worthy. If you question whether or not you are worthy, According to the scriptures, you're not, but that's okay because Jesus is really worthy. And when the father looks at you, that's who he sees. It's rooted in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And trusting that the spirit of God that he has given us as his church is more than enough to empower us to discover God's love for him and for one another each and every day and pass it along as we go about our journey with Jesus. It's not a quick fix. That'd be nice, but that's not what we get. We want three steps. We get a savior. We get a Lord. We get a friend. It's long obedience in the same direction stuff. It's going on a path, singing a song of unity within the family, uh, a song about things like oily beards and dewy mountaintops. But then what's crazy though is we realize that we, as we sing the song on our journey, we do not sing alone. We do not journey alone. There are parts of the journey that feel really lonely, right? You're not alone. The enemy tries to convince us that we are alone. We're not alone. Um, As Luna Lovegood says in uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, uh, Harry is feeling lonely and isolated and trying to believe that he is, that that no one could possibly understand where he's at. And Luna says to him, I'm sure that's exactly how Voldemort would want you to think. That you're all alone. Because you're not much of a threat when you are. See, you sing with a family within your biblical community. A family that extends far beyond these walls across the globe and across the last 2,000 years of church history. See, we are indeed on a family pilgrimage. We're not like brothers and sisters, y'all. We are brothers and sisters. And as brothers and sisters, we journey together to the feet of Jesus. As pilgrims, we go to the high holy place together to worship him. Not just to hang out, although I love hanging out. Not just to have fun, even though that's good. Not just to not feel alone, although that's good too. But that we would come together and unite at the feet of Jesus to seek his presence together. This is why we gather together each week. This is why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says it like this. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but I encourage, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That only makes sense when we understand that we're family or how about when Jesus says we're two or more gather in my name, there I will be also that only makes sense in the context of a pilgrimage. See, we don't just go to church. We come to united, defeated Jesus together. This is, why it is, this is why it matters that we come together and we worship and we center to the teachings of the scriptures. Because when we sing out of praise and when we sing out of desperation, when we lift up a voice together, we are reminded in unison that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are reminded that the heart of the Father is for us together. This is why as a church, we don't refer to our services as services. We call them gatherings. You probably have heard that from a time or two. It's not just because we want to be different or unique. It's because we want to be reminded that we are a gathered people. And so anytime we come together, we are a gathered people. In the New Testament, whenever you read the word church, it's the word ecclesia, and in Greek, and the best translation for the word ekklesia is gathered people, it's really any group of gathered people, but the ecclesia in the context of the family of God is this. So, in, in the book of Acts, we discovered a moment in Acts chapter 2 when the gathered people are all together, the gathered family of God. This Family union is starting to take place and they devote themselves to the apostles teaching, the prayers, the breaking of bread and the fellowship. And they give generously out of abundance to any as they have need. It is not a vision of spiritual consumership where they just come to get their spiritual fill and then they bounce or they come to just feel connected to community and then they bounce. Instead, it is the family coming together to realize that we are all active participants in the life of the family together. This is why, quick shameless plug, this is why I love um, what we've been doing recently with magical moments. Uh, we, we called them previously mosaic moments, now we're referring to them as magical moments. It's this idea that we started a few months ago where they are not official mosaic things. They are things that you as a community that is Mosaic at WW, do for one another. Just random things that you're doing. You're going to go see a movie, invite some friends, put the word out. You're going to go bowling at Splitsville, spread the word. Let's go do that. Whatever you're doing, just invite other people to go and journey along with you. It's this idea that, that we take ownership for our community together, that we want to invite and see one another. And we don't wait for somebody else to do it. We step into that space so, if that's brand new information to you, you're already invited, whether this is your first time here or um, you've been here for a while. Uh, if you want more information on magical moments, we have the board in the back back there that says magical moments, moments on it. And you can um, <laughs> pull that back and let's keep going. Um, ooh, um, and you can. Uh, <laughs> And you can find out all the information on how to get signed about uh, events that will be posted on the board itself, as well as phone numbers for um, individuals who can get you set up into getting those as text notifications about anything that's going on in the unofficial realities that is this community. Does that sound cool? Yeah. Do we see ourselves on a family pilgrimage? when we gather together to worship and to sit under the teachings of the scriptures. See, we are not just putting a marker on our good stuff Christians do bingo card, right? We are uniting as the family at the feet of Jesus. When we do things like go to Bible studies and community dinners and community events and and more, what we are doing is we are gathering with family to learn, to grow, to connect, and yes, have fun. And we are doing that. To unite as family at the feet of Jesus. When we get discipled in discipleship relationships, when we have a conversation with a brother or sister in the community about what God is doing in our lives, when we confess our sins to one another, when we pray for one another, when we give generously to one another who, as we have need, or in any other way, journeying together on this pilgrimage, we are uniting with family at the feet of Jesus. See, ultimately, though, with this, you may mishear and think that, oh, okay, we're just supposed to focus in on ourselves and not give a care about anyone else. No, that would be the opposite of the way it's supposed to work. But you see, Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. In other words, we should put a great deal of emphasis on living together as a family in healthy and helpful ways. But we should be the kind of family that goes out of our way to invite other people into the family. In fact, we enter into uncomfortable moments to invite people into, it's called evangelism. Like we we go and we talk about the gospel to people. We go and we demonstrate the implications of the gospel by being a gospel presence so that we can say, you're welcome into the family too. I know a dad who wants you to be his daughter, who wants you to be his son forever. He wants to call you his beloved child. You belong. That's why that's why it does matter how we love one another. <laughs> because the world is watching. Are they just as broken in their dysfunctions as the rest of the world around us? May we be different. See we gather to scatter. across our weeks as gospel presence and gospel voice to our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our families. And we invite them into the family to discover their belovedness, to unite with us at the feet of Jesus. And see, what's so cool is that this is not where the story ends. There will be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a final pilgrimage that will happen as the family of God goes to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And in that moment, every representative of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will come together, lifting up a holy song, singing once again a song of ultimate ascent in unity before the Father, singing to our Savior, Jesus. And it's that moment that we live for. And when we love one another, we are practicing for eternity. May we live with that kind of eternal focus on our minds and on our hearts. So here's what I'd like to invite us into now. This is obviously a lot that we just covered. So if you just give us a space for just, for just a minute to just spend time praying to God, asking him to solidify some things in your heart and giving you a moment, and then we'll close our time in prayer. I'm going to invite the band to come on forward. Would you all pray with me? It really is beautiful that we get to call you Father. that despite um, any dysfunctions that might be in our earthly homes, in our earthly families of origin, we are loved by you in such a way that, that you are redeeming unredeemed spaces in our lives and in our hearts. And so right now I pray for all my brothers and sisters here tonight, that they would be resting in your love for them, that they would discover their belovedness in you that they would see that they belong to a family. And whether this is the the biblical community you have for them to be a part of or another one. My prayer is that every single one of us would find, find our space, find our biblical community to belong into. One in which we are known and can know others. One in which we can be willing to journey through the difficulties and beauties of life together. Father, you are good and you are kind. And we know that we have seen how beautiful, how wonderful you are by seeing what Jesus has done for us. So Father, I thank you for Jesus. That because of what he has done, we can be united with you. That we can be reminded of our sonship with you. That we can look to our left and to our right in front of us and behind us in a space like this. And know that we are amongst family. Lord, thank you for this family reunion space that we have each week. Help us to live and love one another well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.